Well, good morning and welcome to The Mount. If you are joining us for the first time today, we are in week number four of a series titled Money Talks. For over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at some biblical principles about handling, thinking about, and managing our finances and our money in a life-giving way. And I do want to acknowledge that there are quite a bit of us that maybe are here for the first time today, or we are kind of have been in and out a little bit for this month of October. And so if you've been here every week, would you just bear with me for just a second? Because this series has been building. So I want to take just a minute and recap everywhere we've been as we've gone through this series. And if you'll remember, we've said each and every week a couple key statements. And the first one is this, is that money and life are intertwined. When it comes to our finances, our, our money, our stuff, our possessions, regardless of whether we want to admit it or not, they are intertwined. There is not a single area, aspect, or sphere of our life where we do not think about, use, plan, spend, save, earn something with money on the daily basis. They are intertwined. And because they are intertwined, this means that every single one of us, you and I, are in some sort of relationship with money. Now, for many of us, just like all of our human relationships, those relationships can be life-giving and healthy, and they can be relationships that cause us to thrive and succeed, or they can be dysfunctional and draining. And so we've asked the question is, what happens when we have a dysfunctional relationship with money? Well, maybe for you, you are in college right now and you are attending a university and the dysfunctional relationship with money has caused you to begin pursuing a degree, a career field, that you are not even interested in because of what the future job might pay. Maybe you currently are in a job right now that you hate, you despise, it's a grind, you never wanna be there, but you go every single day miserably because of what it pays. Maybe at some point in your life, some of us, we've gotten into a certain relationship with a significant other simply because of money. When we have a dysfunctional relationship with money, we stay up at night thinking about it. We stress about it. We worry about it. We spend and spend and spend so much that we have mountains of crushing debt. We lose sleep. We live paycheck to paycheck, all because we have this dysfunctional relationship with money. And why do we do this? We've said every week we do this because money talks. We live in a world. We live in a culture. We live in a society where money tells us things. And if we're not careful, we can just kind of blindly follow and listen to what money says as if it's the normal, the accepted, and the social norm to do. But the beauty behind Scripture, behind the Word of God, behind the Bible, is that the Bible speaks as well. And we've said throughout this series that the Bible talks a lot about money and possessions and how we handle them and use them. In fact, we've said as a recap that there are four times as many verses about money and possessions as there are about faith or prayer. We've said that Jesus talked about money and possessions more than any other topic in all of his four gospels in the New Testament. We've said that two-thirds of every single story that Jesus told was about money or possessions because it's important. Why? Because Jesus wants us to realize this, that there is a connection between our spiritual lives and money. There is a fundamental connection between our heart, our soul, our spiritual lives, and how we handle and we think about and use money. The two are intimately, deeply connected. Why? Because we've said in week one 
that so many times what money says, the claims it makes, the promises, the things that it says it can offer us are in direct competition to the very same claims and promises and offers that we see from God. In fact, we've said this, just to recap, we've said that money says several things to us. The first we said is that money says, I will make you happy. Money promises us happiness and joy and satisfaction and completeness. Money says, I will give you security when the future gets difficult, when you don't know what's coming. Have enough of me and I'll give you security and you can weather the storm and ride through any valley that comes your way. Money also says, I'm yours. You can do what you want. I belong to you. You earned me. You made me. You worked hard for me. You grinded for me. Whatever the word you want to use there, I'm yours. And so we've talked about how we earn money, how we save money, and how we spend money. And in each of these areas, we've looked at what what money says and kind of directly look at the claim that God says as well. And what we found is this. When money says, I will make you happy, God says, no, 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 I am enough. If money promises that you will be happy and fulfilled and satisfied and joyed, God says, no, 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 no. The thing that is bothering you, an external thing can never fix an internal problem. What you need is to rest in me because I am enough for your completeness. If money says that I will give you security, God says, trust me. And there's this tension between saving and hoarding, and we talked about this if you've been here. If not, I encourage you to go back to it. Biblically, it is wise to save like the ant, but somewhere along the line, we might cross that line and begin to hoard because we think that the size of our bank account, the, the, the balance of our investments or wherever we hide our money under our mattress, that's going to protect us for the future and give us security. And God says, no, be wise, but trust in me. I'm your future. I'm your security. And last week we said that money says, I'm yours. You can do what you want with me. But God says, no, it's mine. Manage it wisely. It's mine. Manage it wisely. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up this series. And I want to give you one more thought that sort of sums up everything we've talked about over the last couple weeks. And if you think about all the ways we talked about earning and saving and spending, if you kind of sum it all up together, all of the promises, all of the claims, everything that money says to us subtly is this. Money says, worship me. Worship me. Money says, listen, I can give you the life you want. I can give you security. I can give you happiness. I can give you comfort. I can give you what you want, what you need. I can give you a future, everything you ever wanted or imagined or dreamed. I can give you all of those things, but you have to give me control. Just surrender and worship me. Money seductively whispers, worship me because I can meet all of your needs. And it's amazing, right? In direct competition, as if in Scripture, God says, worship me. Money screams, worship me, worship me, worship me. And God says, no, 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 worship me. In fact, over the last couple weeks, we've spent like looking at some incredibly practical things if you've been here, right? We talked about how we earn money. We talked about how we save money and how we spend money and how all of these areas, according to biblical principles, will help us live financially free out of debt and avoiding anxiety and stress and all of these things. And all of these principles and strategies are great and they're incredibly helpful. But the reality is that for so many of us, we could implement every one of these strategies and these principles, but we miss the 
very underlying thing because at the end of the day, it comes down to this. Where does your faith lie? Where does your trust lie? What do you worship? What do you surrender to daily? In fact, Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6 where he talks a lot about money. And in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Because you cannot serve. And I'm going to pause here. That word serve, a lot of times we think I can't serve. Like is Jesus saying I can't serve my employer and serve God. I can't work for this and do this. No, it's not the idea of like service like that. That word in the original Greek, the word serve, actually means slave. And so what Jesus is saying, if I'm paraphrasing, he says you can't serve two masters. You cannot be owned by both what? You see, the issue with our financial life is not about strategies and principles and tools and all of those things are great and they have their place and that's why we've shared them with you. But at the end of the day, what Jesus says is there's no middle ground. You either worship, trust, and serve and are owned by money or you worship, trust, and serve and are owned by God. And what I'm not saying, I'll make, I want to make sure I say this again, that if you have stuff, if you are wealthy, if you have things, if your bank account is good, I'm not saying because you have that, you probably worship money. In fact, we have looked at week after week of example after example of people in Scripture who were both in extreme wealth, who were passionately pursuing God, and people who were in extreme poverty, who were also passionately following and pursuing God. And what we've seen is, is it's not about the stuff and the things and the balance and the wealth and the income. No, it's about the heart behind every single one of those things. You see, Jesus, even the story of the rich young ruler, if you're familiar with this story, this rich young guy comes to Jesus and basically wants to like inherit eternal life and follow him. And Jesus makes this bold statement to him. Jesus tells this rich young ruler for him to follow him, for him to do what's required, he needs to take everything he has and go and sell it and then come back. And we read this and we might think, man, Jesus doesn't want me to have wealth. Jesus doesn't want me to have stuff. No, the issue was not the rich young ruler's stuff or his wealth or his thing. It was his innate, deeply soul-satisfying attachment to those things that he was unwilling to let go of because he worshiped them and they had control of his heart. It's an issue of trust and faith and surrendering to the lordship of Jesus because we've said that it's not ours, it's his. It's just simply our task and our responsibility to manage it according to his wishes and desires. Because the call to follow Jesus, for those of us that have made that decision, it's not a call to compartmentalize lordship. It is a call to absolute surrender and devotion to the Lord Jesus in every area of our lives. And here's the reality. Some of us would rather trust Jesus with our life and eternity than with our money. And let me just, if that's you, if you don't think God can handle your money, he probably can't handle your soul. It's absolute surrender and trust. And here's what I want you to see. As your pastor, for those of you that call the mount your home, 
I want you to break free from the control of money, from the ownership that it has in your life. In the same way that I would want you to break free from anything and everything else that might be hindering your walk with God, whether that was some sort of sin or flesh or external thing, I would want you to be living the life that God has called you to live, the abundant life, the life that is full of his grace and his pleasure and his goodness radiating out of you instead of this life less than what he has for you. I want you to live the best that you can. And when it comes to living financially free and worshiping God and not money, one of the most keystone things that we can do, one of the the baseline things that we can do, the only antidote I see in scripture is living a lifestyle of generosity. In other words, if that word confuses you, being someone who gives more than they receive. Now, maybe you are here today and you're like, I know it, this was it, right? Like it's my first time. And they, every time I go to church, they talk about money. I, I get it. I do. Like I, I promise it's not true. And like, you're like here and you're like automatically be like, see, like they're looking for me. Like they saw my car, it was a Tesla, whatever it was, right? And they're like, they know I got money and they're coming for me. That's not like, maybe for you, like it's like the example, I heard this joke and it was this story about these two guys that they had this small boat and they were out kind of driving around in the ocean and they got far out and their radio broke and through a storm or whatever happened, they ended up crashing on this deserted island. And so these two guys are on this deserted island. No one else is there. Their little boat crash, and they're stuck there. And one of the guys starts freaking out. He's like, oh, my gosh, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. No one knows we're here. We're stuck. This is horrible. We're going to die on this island. And his buddy is just all calm. He's like, it's going to be okay. And he's like, how can you be so calm? Nobody knows we're here. We're going to die on this island. We are left alone. And his buddy says, listen, I tithe $5,000 a month. My pastor will find me. Maybe you feel like that. (laughs) Here's what I want you to hear. And I have said this every time we have talked about generosity at this church since I've been here. This is not something I want from you. This is something I want for you. Why? Because I believe with everything in me that the main way we break the antidote or the control that money has on our lives is by opening up and letting go. When we let go, God does incredible things. So what I wanna do is just, as we've gone through this series, make this continuously incredibly practical. And so I just wanna give you a couple things that I think might help you, whether wherever you are in your journey on generosity. And so the first thing, if you're taking notes, you might write this down. We're going to start with prayer. We're going to start with prayer. And I know that seems incredibly simple, but we've said over and over again, just to recap, over the last several weeks, that there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and money. We've said that like when we, we've seen in scripture where Jesus says where our treasure goes, our heart goes, the idea that wherever I spend my money, my passions, my desires, my devotion or my soul will line up with. And so I wanna follow wherever that goes. If it's on myself, I stay on myself. If it's on the kingdom of God, I follow the kingdom of God. We've said that. We've said that we're managers, not owners. And our task is to steward responsibly the thing that is God's and use it for his kingdom. We've said that God owns everything. And even the wealth that he gives us is for us to enjoy 
to take care of our family, to take care of our neighbors, and to take care of anyone and everyone in and outside the kingdom of God to make a difference. And we said all of this, right, because it's intimately connected with our spiritual lives, the way we handle money. And in light of that, what I'm asking you to do is will you begin, whether that's today, tomorrow, or next week, will you just begin to seek and kind of commit to seek God and ask him what is next for you in this area of your life? Right, like don't listen to me. Don't be like, well, Adam said we have to do this. No, no, no. I want you to go. In fact, James 1.5 says it this way. Take a look. James 1.5 says, if you need what? What do you do if you need wisdom? If you need wisdom, you ask our generous God. <laughs> Love that, right? He's generous. And he will what? He will give it to you. He will give you the wisdom that you need. He will not rebuke you for asking. And so when it comes to this area of your spiritual journey, whether you are a non-believer, whether you're not sure about Jesus, you just started following him, or you've been doing it for 50 years, will you simply ask Jesus this question? When it comes to living a generous lifestyle, what would you have for me? And you might find out that where you are is what he has for you. And I'm okay with that. I don't want you to go outside of the will of God just because you think the church needs your money. I want you to do what God wants for you. And so I'm asking you, will you commit to ask this question? God, when it comes to the area of generosity in my life, what would you have for me? First, we're going to start with prayer. Second thing is we're going to determine the amount. And so I'm, I'm going to go on faith here and say God's going to tell you to be generous. So that's like step two where we're going to determine the amount. And I don't know if you know this, but there have been like tons and tons of studies done on like generosity levels of Americans. And it's interesting that study after study, what they have found is like when they compare People who actively attend church, Christians, Christ followers, who've submitted their life to him, and those who do not. What they have found is that the giving percentage is the same. Now, I remember when I read these surveys, I didn't believe them, so I like, read multiple ones, because it kind of broke my heart like, to think that we have this God who is incredibly generous to us, who gave everything for us, his son for us, so that we would have new life and we would be able to live life to the fullest and be abundant. But those of us that follow Jesus are not any more generous than those And then on top of that, when they looked at active church-going people, people who follow Jesus, love Jesus, attend church, whatever their term active was, regardless of the study that you look at, what they found is that in America, in the United States, the average church-going person gives anywhere between one and two and a half percent of their income to the church annually. One to two and a half percent. Now, you might be like, man, that's so much compared to where I'm at. Or you might be like, oh, that's way more than I have. I can cut back and be average. That's not what I'm saying, right? Like, I'm just pointing out where we are. But what if I told you that there is a number found over and over again in Scripture? And this number that God uses over and over again has not only been proven, like, in the lives of people who have done it and followed Jesus, but in secular sociologists who have nothing to do with faith and religion, they have found that this number, there is a statistical significant difference and impact in the person's life when they begin to give it this number. You would probably wanna know that number. That number's 
That number is 10%. In fact, take a look at this quote from a book called Passing the Plate. It says, Americans who don't give away 10% of their income run the significant risk of ending up less happy than they might have been otherwise. Now, whether you follow Jesus or not, let's just stop here for a second. Let's say we did nothing else in our financial life. We didn't earn money well. We still blew through it and spent it like crazy and we hoarded it or didn't save it all. Let's say we did nothing else. We have talked about this entire series. Statistically, secular sociologists would say, if you give away 10% of your income, you will be happier throughout the course of your life than those who don't. It's as if... It's as if secular sociologists are starting to discover what 2,000 and 3,000 and 5,000 years of history has shown in the Bible, that it is much better to give than to receive. In fact, that number of 10%, it's interesting, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, verse, or chapter 27, verse 30, what you see is this, is a, a what? A a tithe of everything from the land, God is saying, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, it what? It belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And so the Israelites were instructed, they were an agrarian society, and they were instructed to bring a tithe of every, all of their grain, all of their crops, all of their wealth, a tithe of it to the local temple, to the local church. Why? Not because it was payment for services, not because the pastor did a great job that week, not because they liked the worship or their kids got kids ministry. No, because what they were doing is they were returning to God what was already his as managers, not owners. And there's been something in our modern church culture where that phrase tithe has become to mean a lot of things. We, we can be like, oh yeah, like here's 20, this is my tithe for today. You know, I tithe like $100 a year, whatever. We use the word tithe for any sort of donation that we give the local church. But scripturally, a tithe was a very, very specific amount. That word in Hebrew literally means a tenth or 10%. And so what it's saying in Leviticus, and this isn't just Levitical law, we see this all the way back when Melchizedek appeared, we see this in other times, but the idea is of everything that the Israelites produced, all of their crop, all of their goods, they were to set aside 10%, a tenth of it, as an act of worship and devotion back to God, thanking him for what he has supplied to them in the first place. So, Let's, let's pause for a second because what I want to do is I want to say this. Like, I've been like, around church world enough to know when we start talking about giving and somebody throws out a number of 10%, there's a lot of us in the room and we might be like right now feeling some intense shame. We might be like, oh, I give 3%. Oh, I give 0%. Right, like, and we, we begin to feel this, this shame, like we're a failure, like we're not doing enough, we're not living the Christian lifestyle, enough, whatever word you wanna use there. And I just wanna say, like, if you are feeling right now, regardless of what campus you are at, if you are feeling shame over your level of generosity, please don't. That is not biblical. I would argue that shame is actually the voice of Satan, the voice of the devil, the voice of the enemy whispering to you, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, oh, you're a failure, you'll never be good, just give up, it's never gonna work out, see, you're such a loser. That's, that's the voice of the enemy. That, I don't believe that. It's not a shameful thing when it comes to this topic. But I will say this, if you are feeling a little uneasy or a little bit of conviction, that's the Holy Spirit. 
And I don't wanna diminish that in your life. Because in the same way I could say, we need to pray more, and you might feel conviction and uneasiness. Or we need to serve more, and you might feel conviction and uneasiness. When it comes to living a lifestyle of generosity, it is just another area of our spiritual journey that we are all on. And the Holy Spirit uses conviction and uneasiness to show us where there might be a gap in our obedience. Now, I also know this. Because it is part of our spiritual journey, we are all starting somewhere. Maybe you're starting at nothing. Maybe you're at 1%, 5%, 10%, wherever you happen to be. Here's what I know. That is okay. I'm giving you permission to be okay with where you are starting. But just like every other area of your spiritual life, God never intends for you to finish where you start. There's always a next step. There's always forward momentum in our disciplines and practices. So first, we're gonna start with prayer. Second, we're gonna determine an amount. My recommendation is that at some point in your journey, you get to 10%. And maybe you're at 1% right now and you need to kind of go to 2% for the next three or four months and then go to three, you need to slowly work your way or maybe you feel enough conviction in your heart right now that God is telling you to bite the bullet and go straight to 10% and take a step of faith. That's fine, that's between you and him. Remember week one, you are praying for what he wants for you, not what I want for you. The third thing we're gonna do is we're gonna make it a priority. We're gonna make it a priority. I'm going to move over here because our, our natural tendency, and we've talked about these the last couple of weeks, is our natural tendency when it comes to the way we use our money is we kind of have different buckets for us. And like bucket number one, we're going to call the spending bucket, right? And bucket number one is this huge bucket. And let's just say we get $1,000 in income and it comes in, right? And we're like, awesome, I got paid today. This is great. For most of us, the majority of us, not all of us, some of you are really wise and great, but the majority of us, we discovered in week one and two, we act in foolish ways. Even in my life, I act in foolish ways at times. And so what I immediately do is I'm like, oh, I got paid today. I'm going to spend some money. I'm going to pay the mortgage. I'm going to pay the rent. I'm going to pay my car. I'm going to go out to eat. I'm going to take my wife on a date. I'm going to buy school clothes for my kids. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then we look up and we're like, okay, like I got a hundred dollars left. Okay. Well, Adam told us in this series, the wise person, the ant stores up for the future, right? They don't spend everything. So I'm going to save some money. So I'm going to put my savings in there at the end of the month, right? It's the 29th today. So we're going to look at our bank accounts the next couple days and be like, okay, here's everything we spent. Here's what's left. Let's save it. This could be our 401k, our 403b. This could be saving for braces. This could be whatever, our emergency fund, whatever it is. We're going to save for that. And then if we feel like we've saved enough, then we'll give. And we kind of do these buckets in this way. And this is what kind of the natural order when money says you spend on you first, you save for the future, and then you give away out of your surplus what is left with you. But what's interesting is in scripture, we see something that seems to be the complete opposite. In fact, in Proverbs 3, verse 9 through 10, we read this. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth. With your what? with the first fruits of all of your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. 
And what's interesting is the Israelite society was this agrarian society. And what it's saying here by first fruits is that when they would grow crops of wheat or barley or olives, whatever it happened to be, the moment they would start to appear in the fields, they were to gather that first fruit, the beginning harvest, and take that to the Lord to return it to him because he's the owner and he has blessed them with this thing. And they want to worship back and act of thanks and praise to him. But when they did this, don't miss this. When they gave him the first fruits, there was no guarantee that when they went back to the field next week, the rest of the crop would grow. A locust swarm could hit it. It could catch on fire or it could fail. So in essence, the idea of making God a priority when it comes to our finances is literally an act of worship. It's saying, God, I got paid today. And before I pay any bills, before I do anything, I am giving you what I believe is yours in the first place, I'm giving it back to you so that I can acknowledge that in the future I will trust that you will provide. And so what we do in the beginning is we immediately make it a priority and give him whatever that percentage is. Then we set aside our money for savings and then everything else we live off of. And what this teaches us is that when money says, I own you, I have control of you. No, we begin to break the control because we exercise self-control. And we say, God, I'm choosing to live on less because I want to worship you. I want to give back to you. Giving and being generous is not about what you do for the church. It's about what God does in your heart. It's about how he changes you. Living a lifestyle of generosity is ultimately about surrender and trust. It's about proclaiming, God, I will give to you first and I will trust you for the saving and the spending with the rest. It's acknowledging who he is. Third thing is we wanna plan to be consistent. We wanna plan to be consistent. As Americans, we are incredibly, incredibly good at like spontaneous generosity. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like if there's some sort of national tragedy and everyone online is like, donate to this cause and we go all over crazy about it or you're walking into the local grocery store and you see someone collecting money out front and you do something for them or it's at Christmas time and there's like these donation things. We're really good at these ideas of like spontaneous in the moment. I'm gonna be generous in this kind of thing right here in this moment. But there is a major difference between spontaneous generosity and the spiritual discipline and practice of living a generous life. And for those of us that have decided to follow Jesus, we understand this in all other areas of our spiritual life. We fully recognize there is a difference between spontaneous Bible reading and consistent Bible reading. There is a difference between spontaneous prayer and consistent prayer. There is a difference between continuous serving and spontaneous serving. And what I want you to see and experience is that when it comes to the discipline of generosity and giving, it is a discipline, a practice that is consistent, not sporadic. In fact, it's been proven. Again, some secular sociologists at the University of Notre Dame, they call this the science of generosity lab. What a cool job. They said this about generosity. For generosity to enhance one's well-being, it must be practiced. 
Generosity changes people through the process of formation, not isolated or spontaneous behaviors. And formation requires time, repetition, and practice. In other words, if you put those two kind of sociologists together, what they're saying is, listen, there is a statistical significance. When you give away 10% of your income, you are happier. But it only works if you don't give away 10% at one time and be done. It has to be a continual practice of daily, weekly, monthly, letting go and opening up and trusting something bigger than you will provide. It's a continual practice. Paul in the New Testament says it this way when he's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, now regarding your question about money being collected, they had a question about when they should collect money for the local church. He says, you should follow the same procedure that I gave to the churches in Galatia. On what? What does he say? Let's try this again. On the what? On the first day of the week. We're going to come back to that. You should, you should each put aside a portion of your money, a percentage there. Of, and he says, don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. In other words, Paul says, don't like save it, save it, save it, store it up. And then when I get there, be like, okay, now we're going to give all our money. He says, no, you need to create on the first of every week, you need to create a plan, a consistent system of how you are going to engage in generosity. If Paul was writing to, first cent- or to us now in the 21st century, he would say, listen, if you get paid daily, practice the art of generosity daily. If you get paid weekly, practice it Weekly, if you get paid monthly, practice it monthly. Whenever the money comes to your account, you immediately set aside, you plan to be consistent, and you take care of the discipline before you begin to spend and save everything else. Why? Because you will never be generous on accident. Never. I have never in my life met someone who is a generous giver and said, I don't even know how this happened. I just woke up and I was giving money. If that's you, please come talk to me afterwards. We do not drift towards generosity. You have to plan for it so that you practice it. So here's a question. How are you planning to practice generosity consistently? My family and I, I'll give you an insight. We give here to the church regularly And so the way I have it set up is we've gone online and every single other Friday I get a paycheck and when that paycheck hits my account, when I wake up in the morning, I have an email that comes in around 3 a.m. It's one of my favorite emails I get every other week. And this email is basically like, congratulations, you got paid, Adam. I love it, right? But usually a couple hours later, an email is also there that says, congratulations, Adam, thank you for your donation to the Mount. But it's automated. And I say that not because I'm bragging, because what I want you to see is, as a family, we have decided to plan to consistently engage in this discipline. And we are doing it sometimes before we even wake up. And we get to celebrate that, we get to look at that, we get to cheer, whatever we wanna do, right? So here's the question. Will you join us? I'm not asking you to do something my family and I don't do. Not something our staff doesn't do. I'm not asking you to do something our elders don't do. I'm asking, will you join us? Why? Because there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle and use our money. Generosity is something I want for you, not from you. 
I desperately want to see every single one of us, whether we follow Jesus or not, to have the stronghold and the control and the worship of money be broken in our lives, just like I would any other fear-inducing thing that we encounter. I want this so much for you that I'll say this, even if you don't wanna give to the mount because you're frustrated and you don't trust us or whatever happens to be, I would rather see you begin to be generous to another church because I believe that God will do something in your life when you do the act of generosity that is much better than having your money here at the mount because it's about your soul, not your money. There is a connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. Malachi 3, 8 through 10 says it this way. He says, will a mere mortal rob God? Most people say, no, we're not gonna rob God. But he says, yet you rob me. And he asks, like, how are we robbing you, God? Like, what do you mean? He says, in tithes and offerings. He says, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. And he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then he says these key words, repeat these with me. What does he say? He says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. This is the only spot in scripture where God says, test me. And he says, listen, you're hesitant about giving and being generous, just test me. Just take the act of obedience and see what happens. And he says, I will open up the floodgates of blessings. Now, what that doesn't mean is you're all of a sudden gonna get a lot more money or a new job. No, that's not what I'm saying. What it might mean is you get blessed in all the other ways that are not financial. Your marriage might get better. Your kids, the relationship you have get better. You might just feel more joy and satisfaction. You might have a more hunger and thirst for the Lord, but you will get blessing beyond blessing because God says, I will open the floodgates. And here's the issue. Do you trust him? You trust him with your life and your future and your soul. Do you trust him with your money that he will provide and bless you? I've never in my life met someone in all the years of counseling in my office who said, Adam, our family is in a mess right now because we started tithing. Never heard that. Will you join us? Take a look at this video of a story from our El Monte campus about what changed in their life when they started giving. Yeah, my name is Jose Hernandez. Um, I attend El Monte campus. Been attending El Monte since the first day it launched. Yeah, I think um, some financial challenges that I faced during my lifetime is when I was young, um, we didn't have a lot of money in our household, so we lived off of food coupons. There was not a lot much money to go buy. It's very difficult for us, but at the same time, my childhood was great. It's just money was really something that wasn't talked about. I met my beautiful wife. I married into a person that had a different perspective about money. Since I didn't have a good base, we didn't make a good team, and our finances were were very bad and we kind of lived paycheck to paycheck for maybe the first six years of our marriage. I was not managing money correctly, didn't have enough money to pay my bills, so how can I give money to the church if I cannot pay the bills myself? 
What motivated me to start giving to God was I was pleading to God, please help us, please help our marriage. Our marriages are going through some tough times. So to God, please, I want to give to you and I want to be more financially stable. I applied for another job and I just pleaded with God about this. And thankfully, I got a 90% raise at this other job. And at this moment, I said, God, I will commit to giving and to putting you first and I started putting God first in our finances and managing money better with my wife. They were giving a special offering for the church and we were going to buy a house. It was sort of like, hey, you would do anything for your house, but you would do anything for the house of the Lord. I knew that God was telling me to give to the church for this special offering for the new campus. And initially I said, maybe I'll give $100 or $200 but inside of me, I knew it was everything. So that morning I went to our house and I told my wife, hey, we're gonna give everything we have to the church. Um, my wife looked at me a little weird, but I said, yes, um, we're gonna do it. So I took all my savings and everything in my checking account and we gave it to the church. Maybe in the beginning of our marriage, when we had zero, it was stress and it was a lot of hardship, but this time when we had zero dollars in our bank, it was more peace. Today, financial freedom has really blessed us immensely. I would say for us, we've been able to manage money better, been able to pay off more debt, and God has blessed us with that house. God showed me in a way that you have to also fix your marriage and fix your relationship. So maybe you should spend more time with your marriage and then try to do biblically what it says with your finances, manage your finances better and your relationships will be better. You won't have the love for the money. So I think that's a good way to go. He will open the floodgates. Here's the reality too though, as you begin to practice the gift of generosity, it becomes contagious and you find yourself doing it more and more and more. As we end this series, I just wanna close by saying this. I hope that you feel, you see, and you experience what it means to live financially free in a biblical way. My prayer is that you will feel more content, more joy, more purpose and satisfaction than you have ever felt as you walk with God and Jesus in this area of your life. Because there is a fundamental connection between your spiritual life and money. And here's what I know. Being generous is like that keystone habit that when you do it, everything else snowballs and changes. Will you join us? Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are a generous God. God, that when we look in scripture, every moment of your intervening, of your acting is a generous act. Over and over again, you bless us, provide for us, care for us, give us mercy and grace and all the things that we don't deserve, but you continuously pour them out over and over again because you are a generous God. God, even as we reflect over 2,000 years ago, when you sent your son in the ultimate act of generosity to give up his life for us, people who didn't deserve it, who didn't want it, who were so far gone, you and your generous love provided a way. And so God, as a church, 
not as individual people, but as a church, people who call this local body of believers their home. We want to be you to the community. We want to be generous. We don't want money to have control and power. We want you to have control and power. God, would you see that through in all of us? Amen.